Have you ever had a reality check? Maybe it happened when you moved out of your parents' house and uh, then you realize just the expense of life and uh, the responsibilities of life and just reality kind of hit. Uh, maybe it was a test you had to take, a paper you had to write, or a job interview or something like that, and you thought you aced it, you thought you nailed it, and then you get the results back, and well, it didn't go the way you thought it did. There's this reality check that happens. Maybe it's with athletics or sports or something, and you're th- you think you're quite the athlete, only you find out, well, you're just like a big fish in a small pond. Once you get into a real ocean of athletes, well, you're still just a minnow. Uh, maybe it's with somebody, a, a person, and you have this expectation or you have these thoughts about somebody, and then, well, reality hits, and you see their true character for better or worse, and, well, reality hits. The, the thing is, in life, we often have reality checks because our view of reality gets distorted. So we think one thing about how life works or how life is going only to find out, well, we had it all wrong. And you know what? We're living in a time and a culture that I think is in desperate need of a reality check. Because in many ways, as a culture, we've distorted a whole host of things, right? We've distorted uh, gender, sexuality, wealth, uh, money, success, relationships, God. The list just goes on and on and on. We're in desperate need of a reality check. But you know what? It's not just the culture. Sometimes it's the church, too. And it's not just true for our day and age. It was also true in Peter's day and age as well. As he's writing to the first century church, this is a church who is experiencing persecution from the Roman Empire, and they're thinking, okay, the Messiah is coming back at any moment. I mean, they they thought that they were closer to the end than they were to the beginning. And so Peter's writing to them to give them confidence to endure the suffering that they are facing. You know what? The American church is the American church today. I believe we need a reality check as well. And Peter's words ring just as true for us today in the 21st century as they did back in the first century. So let's check them out. First uh, Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, as we continue our confidence series in First and Second Peter. First Peter 4, 1 through 6, Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Forever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead." For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So Peter begins this section with the word, therefore. And, you know, we know, if you've been around Central long enough to know, uh, you know, whenever you see that word, therefore, you always want to connect it to the previous passage, right? You want to see the context, okay? So what was he talking about before this? In other words, Peter's saying, hey, in light of everything I just said, let me now tell you how you should think, how you should live. Um, what he's wanting to do is to be able to translate right thinking into right living. And so what has Peter just talked about? What was in the section that came before this? Well, it was the suffering of Christ. It was everything that Christ endured, everything that he went through. 
And so Peter wrote, and he told us how Jesus Christ, the one righteous one, the one just one, suffered and died for us, the unrighteous, the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. So in light of Jesus' faithful suffering, as he was righteous and unjustly faced all this, in light of that, here's how you should live. When you face suffering, uh, don't sin. That's how, that's how, that's what he's saying. Now, he puts it in a way that we wouldn't really put it. You know, his wording is a little different. You know, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, we wouldn't really say it that way because to our ears, it sounds like, okay, if you've suffered, you no longer sin. And well, by experience, we all know that's not true, right? I mean, we've gone through hardships. We've all suffered. There's been heartache. There's been pain in our lives. That doesn't mean we stop sinning. No, no, that's not what Peter's saying, though. He's, he's not saying, hey, now you've reached this state of perfection. What he's writing about is a state of resoluteness. Now, when we suffer, when we experience hardship, difficulty, pain in our lives, sometimes the temptation is, well, I just want it to end, right? I mean, I'll do whatever it takes just for this to stop. And so we look for the first way out. And so if that means sin, well, you know, we can justify it. We can rationalize it. We can think a certain way. We just want it to stop. Well, Peter's writing and he's saying, hey, here's the resolute attitude you need to have. Don't sin, right? So sometimes that means not just taking the easy way out, not rationalizing or justifying actions, choices, behaviors, because we just don't want to hurt anymore. No, no, even in the suffering, don't sin. Because here's the reality. Jesus, the righteous one, this is what he's connecting it to. Jesus, the righteous one, the just one, has paid the penalty for our sins so that we can be brought to God. In other words, we have been saved from the penalty of sin, right? Jesus did that for us on the cross. He saved us from the penalty of sin. And so what does that mean? It means the banner that flies over all of our lives as believers is this banner of no condemnation. There's now no condemnation for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. Why? Because his righteousness is given to us. We're clothed in the righteousness of, of Jesus. So it's not like God just holds like a little bit of condemnation back and says, you know what? I know you're going to do some bad stuff. You know, you're going to make some bad choices. You're going to do some rotten things. I know it's coming. So I'm going to hold just a little bit of condemnation back just because you need to feel it, right? I, I'm, you know, you're going to need a little bit of punishment here. Uh, no, no, that's not it right? We're, we're under the banner of Jesus, no condemnation. However, there's this other truth, this other reality, and that's not what Peter's talking about. There's this reality that even though we have been saved from the penalty of sin, we are now being saved from the power of sin. Because sometimes sin still has a seductiveness to it, right? There's still an, an attraction to it. Because some, sometimes it, like, hey, it looks fun. Sounds like, you know, I'd like to do that. I'd like to join in with that. There's an attractiveness and appeal to it. Other times it's, well, you know, this might make life easier. You know, if I go down this road, if I say this, you know, this lie is not really going to hurt anybody. It's going to make life easier. And so there's this seductiveness to it. And Peter's writing, he said, hey, this is still a struggle. Sin is still a struggle in how you live in the day-to-day. -day. You're not, you're no longer under condemnation for it, but you don't choose sin either. In, in an act of gratitude and love for Jesus, who the righteous one who suffered on our behalf, how do we live? Oh, well, we live lives of gratitude. We don't want to sin. 
But here's the thing. As you walk in step with the Spirit, as you walk in Christ, all of a sudden the way you think, it's transformed because you're reading the Word and the, and the Word transforms your thoughts. And that gets translated into how you live and the choices you make and, and the decisions that you make. All It starts to change. And for us, you know, it happens incrementally. It can be small. And what I mean by that is as you're changing, being conformed to the image of Christ, thinking more the way God does, and, and making decisions more in line with the Scripture, uh, we don't necessarily see the change that's taking place in our lives, like right away, right? I mean, we're changing, but we don't even realize we're changing. That's why we need to be in community, right? It's one of the reasons why we emphasize missional groups here, so that we're involved with people who are asking us just important questions, tough questions, so to spur us towards growth, but also so they can come alongside of us and say, you know what, Steve? I, you wouldn't have thought like that a year ago. You, know, you, you wouldn't have said things like this a year ago. I see the development of Christ in your life. And that's encouraging because sometimes we miss it in our own lives, right? We're looking more like Christ, but we don't necessarily see it because we live in the day-to-day with ourselves. And so we don't always know it, notice the change. But the reality is we're being saved from the power of sin. But as we talked about the other week, you know, when, when the Bible says, hey, don't sin, and that's effectively what Peter is saying here, he never just, the Bible never just leaves it there, right? Because then you're left in this vacuum, all right? I'm not supposed to sin. Okay, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Now I'm just left, well, what do I do? The Bible always gives us the good. The Bible always tells us, okay, now here's what you are to do. And so here, hey, don't live for the human passions and the, and the fleshly appetite. Instead, live for the will of God. And this phrase gets to purpose. It gets to reason for being. Here, here's, here's what you are to do. And so it's, it, the Bible almost always frames it in the positive. It's never like uh, that there's not things to avoid. Obviously, there's sin to avoid. But it always gets flipped. Well, here's what you do. It fills in the vacuum. And let me show you why that's so important, okay? Just to put it in, like, kind of practical terms for us. We're, we're at the start of a new year here, still relatively early in the year. And at the start of the new year, sometimes we make our own resolutions, right? And, and oftentimes it's, hey, I want to be healthier this year. I'm going to watch my diet. I'm going to eat better. And let's say I, just, I love Oreos, okay? So I'm just telling myself, no more Oreos, all right? Now, if I get up every morning and I just say, okay, Steve, no Oreos today. Okay, can't do it, no Oreos, no Oreos. I'm driving into work, no Oreos, no Oreos. It's lunchtime, like, can't have any Oreos, all right? Can't do it, no Oreos. Driving home, no Oreos, no Oreos, no Oreos. If I do that all day long, by day three, what happens? When I leave here, I'm pulling into the food line, I'm grabbing a packet of Oreos, and I'm eating half the package on the way home. Why? Because I filled my mind up with Oreos all, all week, right? It's not just don't do this. And so how does, what does Peter say? He says, have the mind of Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. And you know the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is in the positive, right? When, he, when he's facing the cross and he's in the garden and then he's on the cross, Jesus wasn't saying to himself, all right, don't get off this cross right now and just like take out the Roman army, all right? Don't, don't just get down and just go into the Sanhedrin and just like clean house with the, with the Pharisees right now. No, he's not telling himself that. What does the Bible tell us Jesus was saying as he's like enduring the cross? It says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. Right? For the joy of doing the will of the Father. 
for the joy of seeing humanity redeemed and being able to be brought back into proper relationship with God, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. See, have you ever noticed that Christians who really walk in step with the Spirit are the most happy, joyful uh, people on the planet? They're the most optimistic people on the planet? And if you haven't noticed this, it makes me really sad that you haven't really met believers who walk in step with the Spirit because there is a zest for life. There's an optimism. There's a joy when you walk in step with the Spirit. I mean, this is what the Bible tells us. Focus on the good. Think about that, which is good and pleasing and perfect. And so as believers, we focus on the good. It's not just don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And sometimes the, the church gets that label. No, no. The church are people who focus on the good. We focus on what God has called us to do, the purpose, the reason for being. It's interesting. Peter says that as we're being saved from the power of sin, that the experience of that victory begins in the mind. And so he says, arm yourself with the mind of Christ. It begins in the mind. It begins with how we think. So I tell you this all the time. If you don't tell your kids who they are, the world will. And the world always gets it wrong. But it's not just our kids. If you don't know who you are, the world will tell you who you are. The world will tell you how to think, how to feel, how to react, the choices you should make. And the world always gets it wrong. See, we we must know who God is what and what he's done because that reality, that truth, then tells us who we are and how we're to live. All right, it begins with the mind. We must arm ourselves with the mind of Christ. And so Peter, he's using uh, military uh, language here, military terminology. Uh, Chuck Swindoll, he's probably my favorite pastor. Uh, He wrote of this passage. And by the way, Chuck Swindoll, he was a Marine, okay? He's a military man. And this is what he said of this passage. He said, Peter's point is clear. Christ has not sent us into the world as vacationers on a self-guided tour of a playground, but as soldiers on a tour of duty in a battlefield. We're not called to kick back, relax, take in the scenery, and wait for God to take us home. Rather, we are engaged in a fierce conflict on foreign soil, and we need to arm ourselves with spiritual armor to withstand the temptations of the world. I believe that this is the reality check that the American evangelical church needs today, that we're not on a playground, you know, we're on a, we're on a battlefield, that the, the church building isn't some just nice country club where we get to gather and encourage each other and have fun with each other and learn a little bit about God. You know, as we gather as the church, this is an equipping station so that we can be sent out to be ambassadors and make disciples wherever it is we live, work, study, and play. The role of the church is not to come around like, hey, let's dream up these cool like, programs that we can implement. The role of the church is not to implement programs. It's to imitate a person, Jesus Christ. And that's what we're trying to do here. We, we want to equip one another. We want to sharpen one another so that we're effective there. And I've told you this story, um, part of it, I think, before, but it, I think it bears repeating. Um, in... At the start, and even before the start of World War II in Nazi Germany, uh, the, the German church 
at that time, about a third of the German church stood up against Hitler and the Nazis once it became clear their ideology and what they were about and what they wanted to do. They stood up against it, about a third of the German church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the leading voices in the church at that time, saying, no, we must rise up against Hitler and the Nazis and everything they're about. Um, about a third of the German church, church, I'm going to use loosely, I think it was an apostate church, so basically government-run church, they actually backed Hitler and the Nazis, yeah, we're all in. Hitler's plan, this is great, we're all for it. And then there was another third of the German church who basically said, you know, we're just not political, all right? We're just going to preach the gospel, but we're going to stay out of politics. Whatever happens there happens. You know, that's not our domain. Listen, the gospel enters every domain. There's no section of the gospel, there's no part of Christianity that just says, you know what? You're not a part of that. I don't, we don't really go there. No, Jesus touches everything. He redeems everything, makes all things new. He touches it all. So we never just sit on our hands. But anyway, as, th- as this is happening, so you have a third who's against, a third who's pro, and a third who's just like, ah, you know, whatever, We're not, that's not us. Um, there was this resistance. And part of the resistance was known as the White Rose Resistance. And there was... Um, a young 21-year-old girl. Her name was Sophie Scholl. And Sophie, uh, she was walking one day in Germany. She found this leaflet on the ground. She read the leaflet that kind of detailed the Nazis and what they were up to and Hitler and kind of preached against it. And as she read this, her eyes were open and she said, I've got to do something. I I can't just be silent. I can't just sit back. I must do something. She's a believer. And so she gets involved. And as she got involved, she found out that the leader of the White Rose Resistance was actually her brother, Hans. And her older brother, he wanted to protect his younger sister. He he hadn't even told her about it, all right? But now that she found out, she's like, I'm all in. You can't stop me. And he's like, all right then, come on. And they start passing out leaflets, doing all kinds of things. They go to the University of Munich in Germany. And they rain down just hundreds of leaflets from the sixth floor in an atrium there, and they just rain them all down. And one of the janitors sees them and hands them over, points them out, and they're arrested by the Nazis, and they were both ultimately beheaded. But Sophie, one of the things she said uh, was this, and I think it's profound. She said, the real damage is done by those millions who want to survive. The honest men who just want to be left in peace those who don't want their little lives disturbed by anything bigger than themselves, those with no sides and no causes, those who won't take measure of their own strength for fear of antagonizing their own weakness, those who don't like to make waves or enemies, those for whom freedom, honor, truth, and principles are only literature, those who live small, mate small, die small. It's the reductionistic approach to life. If you keep it small, you'll keep it under control. If you don't make any noise, the boogeyman won't find you. But it's all an illusion, because they die too. Those people who roll up their spirits into tiny little balls so as to be safe, safe, safe from what? Life is always on the edge of death. Narrow streets lead to the same place as wide avenues, and a little candle burns itself out just like a flaming torch does. I choose my own way to burn. See, this is resoluteness. This is living with purpose. And you know what church historians tell us about 
World War II and the Nazis and all that, that if just half of the German evangelical church would have stood up against Hitler and the Nazis, World War II would have never happened. But because so much of the church just sat back and said, that's not us, that's not our domain, the, the good news of the gospel doesn't touch politics. Well, we know history, we, we know what happened. The encouragement for us today is don't shrink back. Stand out. Stand out. The good news of the gospel touches every aspect of life. And I'm afraid that there are many in the American church today who uh, we've adopted this mindset of, you know, hey, if I can just like live in peace here and just be quiet and, you know, you know, no one mess with me, I won't mess with anybody else, life will be good. And so, hey, I don't want to say anything because political correct crowd, I'll be canceled out, whatever, you know. Listen, you're not called to something small. You're called to something huge. You're called to the eternal kingdom of God. It's massive. And he gives you a voice. He gives you what to say. Uh, you know, we, we talk about what happened in World War II, but the same thing was happening in Peter's day. The exact same thing was going on. As the church was being persecuted, what's happening? There were Christians who were standing up and standing out. And so we could go through the stories of martyrs in, in Peter's day and, and shortly thereafter, like Ignatius and Polycarp and Agnes of Rome and Perpetua, and we could tell those stories. But you know, there were others in the first century, second century church, who because of the persecution of Rome, they said, you know what, I don't want to say anything. I don't want to die. Let me, let me just kind of shrink back and maybe I won't be noticed. And Peter's writing this letter in part to say, no, no, engage culture. Keep sharing the gospel. Have confidence. Don't shrink back. Stand out. Shine the light of Christ in the darkness. And we get a picture of the darkness of that society, right? Because here's what the Gentiles want to do. Here's how they live. And they live in drunkenness and orgies and lawless idolatry and all kinds of sensuality, all this different stuff. And here's the thing. They think that's life. They think living that way is going to bring pleasure. It's going to bring fun, going to bring meaning. Like, hey, this is what life's about. This is how we have fun. And then if you don't participate, what do they say? Well, you're crazy. Are you just a little goody two-shoes, right? Uh, you know, you need to lighten up a little bit. Have a little fun. It's no big deal. Come on, join in. And Peter says, you know, they're going to malign you. They're going to ridicule you. You know what? A lot of you, you've experienced that too, haven't you? Where people have said things about you. They've taunted you. They've made fun of you. they poked you a little bit because you've just said, no, no, no. I'm not doing that. And if you've never experienced that, well, one of two things has happened. Either one, you've just kind of gone, gone along with the crowd, said, okay, I'm going to do that, you know. Sounds fun or whatever. It's no big deal. I'm just going to join in. Maybe, maybe it'll be a good time. And you've joined in. Or the other uh, option is, well, you just don't hang around any sinners, right? You don't have any sinner friends. And so there's no one to point anything out to you. Here's the thing about Jesus. Jesus was always hanging out with sinners, right? It caused the religious crowd to make fun of him. But I'm, I, I bet there was a time or two the, sinning, the sinner crowd was making fun of him too. Right? How come you're not doing this? If you cocoon your life, you'll never hear anything, right? You won't be maligned. You won't be taunted. You won't be poked at, right? Because you're only around believers. We're not called to cocoon ourselves, right? We're, we're, we, we don't form a monastery here where we just say, hey, don't engage the world. Just keep, no, no, no. We equip. This is an equipping station so that we can share the light of Christ wherever it is we live, work, study, and play. Because here's the thing about light. Uh, it shines brightest in the darkness, you know. 
if, if all of us just kind of light a candle right now, ah, you know, it's kind of cool, whatever. But it doesn't really make all that much of an impact. But at Christmas Eve, when we turn all the lights off and everything, and then we light a candle, what, wow, this is really cool. This is kind of special. Why? Because light shines brightest in the darkness. We're called to take the light of Christ to wherever it is we live, work, study, and play, not to shrink back. This is what Peter is getting at. In the context of everything he's saying, you know, because we come to verse 6, and this is important, and, you know, Peter's talking about being mistreated. He's talking about being maligned, being unjustly punished and persecuted and ridiculed and all these things. Uh, But sometimes it doesn't end with just being maligned and persecuted and ridiculed Sometimes it costs Christians their lives. And that's what he's getting at in verse 6. The gospel has been preached even to those who are dead. In other words, even to those who are now dead. The gospel was proclaimed to them, but guess what? It gave them confidence to know that even though the men in the flesh may have judged them, they are now alive in the spirit just as God is. And in other words, even if the rejection of this world should cost you your life like it did for Sophie and Hans Scholl, like it did for Dietrich Bonhoeffer, like it did for those in the first century, Peter, Perpetua, Polycarp, and others. Even if it should cost you your life, it's worth it. Because here's here's the reality. When you are alive in the Spirit, you are free from the presence of sin. There's no more sin. Fully, finally, forever, living for Christ is therefore worth it. It's worth it. It's worth your obedience. It's worth whatever sacrifice. Because the present sacrifice is not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So even if your life isn't great right now, because you're faithfully living, because of your obedience, because you're faithfully living for Christ, right? Keep on being faithful. Now, if you say, man, my life isn't great but you know it's because you've made a whole bunch of poor choices, repent, right? That's the other thing. Yeah? Repent. Turn back to God. Be faithful. But the beauty of this passage is it gets to the reality that all of us experience as believers because it talks about, hey, here's what God's salvation accomplished uh, and has already accomplished. This is our justification that we have been saved from the penalty of sin. It talks about our ongoing sanctification that we experience right now, that we are being saved from the power of sin. And it also alludes to our glorification that we will be saved fully forever, finally, from the presence of sin. It gets at all of this. Now, this uh, was a reality check that the early church in Peter's day really needed to hear. That the Messiah who they had hoped and thought would just come and end this persecution that they were experiencing from the Roman Empire, they could just be taken away from all this and and the Romans be judged and all that, it would be great. Uh, Peter's writing to them so that they would continue to endure, so that they would have confidence, so they would stand out and not just shrink back. The passage, I believe, is a reality check for our church today, who sometimes we can just want to disengage culture and say, man, it, this is all a bridge too far. They've gone crazy, mad. I'm just, I'm just out. I, I just want to, you know, I'll, I'll live my quiet, peaceful life here and just, you know, Whatever those politicians are doing, you know, whatever. Um, Listen, we're not on a playground. We're on a battlefield. And we have a joyous privilege. It really is, of being able to stand up for Christ, who would sacrifice his life for us. So we shine the light of Christ 
wherever it is we live, work, study, and play. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you just for your goodness to us. God, that um, you would choose to send your one and only son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, to suffer and die in our place, the unrighteous, in order that we could be made in right relationship with you. And so, God, now you give us the joyous privilege of being proclaimers, heralds of that good news of the gospel in an an upside-down world. God, may we not shrink back, but like faithful believers who have gone before us, uh, may we stand out and shine the light of Christ wherever it is that we live, work, study, and play in the mission fields of life that you've placed us. We recognize that we desperately need your help for this, so we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.